It is good to be home. Uh, we were away last weekend with a few of you on spiritual retreat and had a great time. Uh, Josiah Haddleton came alongside to do some leadership there, and Miss Brittany came alongside to lead us through some stuff, and it was just uh, really enriching. So thanks uh, for standing in uh, for me there, Pastor Dan, and thanks for sending us away, uh, church. You don't know it, but your generosity and your giving helps make those retreats possible so that those interested in uh, digging a bit deeper into the soul's space and hearing from God can do so. So um, thanks for your continued investment. Week five, I believe, of six, going through the book of James. Next week, we wrap up our series in James. This week, we find ourselves in chapter four. So jump right there with me, if you will, James chapter four, verse one. And um, Trevin, I'm trusting you're catching that back there, right? Something, okay, awesome. James chapter four, verse one. What is causing the quarrels and fighting among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he, he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, verse 7, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. In verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, May your goodness and your grace and your love speak to us in these moments. May we be intrigued at your will and your way. May our curiosity be further stirred for the way your kingdom economy works. And may we nudge just that bit closer to you in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody, anybody ever read the poem Beowulf? Anybody? Uh, oh, got, got a few? Okay, great. Well, I'm going to get it all wrong, but um, for the sake of um, illustration, I'm going to give you what I got. Uh, written somewhere between the, the years of like 925 and 1025 AD. It's really, really old. Uh, the poem Beowulf is 3,100 lines long. Uh, for most of us, we would call that a novel, not a poem. Uh, But for English lit majors, that's just a mere poem. 
additionally, it, it's a poem written in a really unique style to what most of us who m maybe read poetry here there would be familiar with. It, it doesn't use rhyming as, as the main feature to grab attention or to make uh, emphasis on the correct syllable, I think is the way the joke goes. Uh, in, instead of rhyming, it uses alliteration. And much like many of the Psalms, it begins with the first character in the alphabet and works its way through. And the emphasis that the writer wants us to catch is found in the next alliterative syllable um, or the next alliterative letter uh, throughout. So for all of these reasons and more, nobody ever reads it uh, because... <laughs> You know, like 3,100 lines that don't rhyme that were written a thousand years ago. Um, thanks, no thanks. Um, give me Harry Potter, I'll be just fine, right? Um, but there's a really, really interesting thing going on in the story of Beowulf, and one that has quite honestly captured my attention for a good many years. I was first introduced to it by a book that a friend of mine wrote, um, a guy named Todd Hahn who, uh, God rest his soul, passed away some years back. Um, but he wrote a book, uh, Thriving in Ministry Conflict. And he walked through the story of Beowulf, and that's really what captured um, my attention some years ago. So the story essentially goes like this. There's three real main characters, at least, going on here. You've got Rothgar, the king of the Danes. And uh, Rothgar is uh, a, a joyful and benevolent king. And in fact, he's so happy with the state of his kingdom that he decides to throw a huge feast, a giant party, and invite all of the subjects in his entire kingdom to come and to celebrate this party. Uh, but the second character in the poem, if you will, is Grendel, the jealous monster. And Grendel stands outside of the party and cannot stand a reality through his jealousy where this party goes on and there is joy without him. And so Grendel, the monster, begins to sneak to the outskirts of the party and grab subjects of Hrothgar the king and secretly steal them away and devour them and eat them and kill them. Well, kill them probably first and then eat them. I don't know how the order of operations works, but they all go bye-bye. And one by one, he does this. And this goes on for 12 years the party carries on. And for 12 years, Grendel the monster snatches away subjects one by one. Well, the third player in the play is Beowulf. And Beowulf is the nephew of a neighboring king and he's of a sea journey away, but catches wind of this tragedy going on and something stirs in him. And so he comes to the aid of all the people being killed and Hrothgar, king of the Danes. And a fierce and desperate battle ensues between Beowulf and the victor kills Grendel the monster. Beowulf is celebrated. Peace returns to the land. And in fact, uh, through a series of events, Beowulf is actually made king of his own empire and rules as king for better than 50 years. 50 years later, a new monster materializes this time a fire-breathing dragon. And Beowulf goes back to his old bag of tricks and decides, I'm gonna battle the fire-breathing dragon and kill him. And again, Beowulf engages in battle, but in the battle between the fire-breathing dragon, both Beowulf and the dragon are killed in battle. And then the poem closes with a celebration of Beowulf for his bravery and his goodness of heart. 
But after a little bit of reflection, uh, one, I think, would be forgiven if their response is somewhat like the little boy in the movie, The Princess Bride. Remember, he's being read this story by, I imagine, his grandfather, and he gets to the end of the grand tale of The Princess Bride, and he goes, are you kidding me? That's how it ends? And like this outrage, right? You've got to be kidding me. And one would be forgiven for reading Beowulf in a similar fashion because it, it ends with such a like flat finish. After some investigating, the story and those who read the story more specifically would be forgiven for any sort of reductionistic conclusion that would lead us to make the simple distinction of who is the hero and who is the villain. Because the story ends after 3,100 lines and the inference is that the hero was Beowulf and that Beowulf slayed the dragon and slayed the Grendel the monster before and gave his life for it. And you have this very sort of messianic kind of thread going through it. But on further investigation, which is why you would go, wait, what? It ended that way. One has to ask the question, who's the real hero? And who's the real villain? You see, sometimes in life we make the mistake that I think the writer of Beowulf intended for us to make, which is uh, he who self-reflects is always the bad guy. (laughs) And those who never self-reflect can somehow be the good guy. You see, Grendel the monster is actually the only one in the story doing any self-reflection. Grendel the monster realizes I'm jealous and I can't deal with my jealousy, so I will kill. Now, a horrible response to his self-reflection but he at least self-reflects. Well, one has to ask the question, how is the king not the villain? The king who for 12 years eats and drinks and parties and lets his people get killed right under his nose? How is this a good guy? And one certainly could ask the question, how is Beowulf the hero of the story? He just matched greater violence with violence to win the day until greater violence no longer worked. Is that a hero? Are are we the hero if we just stand up to a bully and punch him in the face and somehow we're the hero? No, I think it just makes us a bigger monster, maybe. Am I bugging you? I think I'm bugging some of you. You see, we're benefited uh, by these harsh and striking words of James, the brother of Jesus, because they remind us yet again that we operate in a world, in a world economy, if you will, that is altogether different from what wins in the kingdom, what gets it done in the kingdom. See, in this world, when faced with violence, the natural reaction is better violence, and then you win and you're a hero. In this world, if you want to get something, you just take it from someone else. And you say, well, you sucker, you should have held it tighter. But in the kingdom of heaven, things work differently. Jesus is Christus victor. He is our victory, but he accomplishes victory, not by fighting the Roman soldiers, but by willingly sacrificing to them and giving his life as a ransom for many. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when they come to arrest Jesus, 
And Peter's natural human response is, all right, sweet, the revolution has begun. And he takes out his sword. Peter, being probably some 15-year-old kid who studied as a rabbi, is not a great soldier. And he swipes at the Roman soldier and cuts off his ear. And Jesus is like, are you kidding me right now? Like, have you not been watching? Like, we didn't train with swords. We trained with prayer. We didn't learn the art of war. We learned the art of healing. We didn't develop our skills of how to take over an empire. We leaned in to the beauty of sacrifice. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus says in Matthew 5 throughout the Beatitudes, as he really sets up the thesis of the entire gospel. You want to know what the gospel is or want to be reminded what the gospel is? The thesis is right there in Matthew 5, 1 through about 16 or 18. You get the whole thesis of the gospel there. And it says that those who mourn are the blessed ones. That those who endure difficulty are the ones who get the blessing. That those who are humble will actually inherit the earth. This means that the wisdom of this world is no longer our north star when we declare the kingdom as the place where we choose to place our lives. Just because it gets me ahead down here doesn't mean it will get me ahead in the kingdom. And maybe it's because last weekend I was on spiritual retreat with some friends and we spent the weekend exploring our own internal desires and what drives us and what motivates us. Or, or maybe it goes deeper than that and it's because I imagine James, the brother of Jesus, writing these words to us and remembering how Jesus called some of the first disciples to be disciples. And James is sort of in a roundabout fashion, at least in my attempted humble opinion. He's reminding us of the way Jesus calls out those of us from the world and invites us to be his rabbis. Maybe you remember John chapter one, right? John the Baptist has these students and he's pictured as their rabbi. But John the Baptist has said on a number of occasions, like, I'm not even worthy to tie that guy's sandals. I must decrease. He must increase. And and John the Baptist is in essence handing off his students. Like, guys, seriously, listen to me. There is a better teacher in town now. And he sends his his students off to go be with Jesus. And and they approach Jesus in John chapter 1. And you've heard us say it so many times. Jesus looks at them in John 1 verse 38 at these new students, and he says, what do you want? And so by the time James, the brother of Jesus, arrives at his own typewriter or whatever he wrote with to draft the book of James, this beautiful wisdom book in the New Testament, he takes a slightly nuanced approach to Jesus' question of what is it that you want out of your life? He just calls us out right away. I'll tell you what you want. <laughs> you want evil. You want to get ahead. You want to take care of your own and it doesn't matter what it does to anyone else. Look back with me at verses one through three here. James says, what, what is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? 
You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of others, but you can't get what they have, so you fight and you wage war. James is punching pretty hard here at us, but don't miss the gift he's giving us if we will explore it, if we will lean into self-reflection. The gift here is to pause our life when desire arises and do some self-reflection. The task is to ask ourselves some tough questions. Like, what would that fulfilled desire do to my soul? Man, I really want that new car. Man, I really want that job. Man, I really want that relationship. Man, I really want that vacation. Man, I really want that experience. Man, I really want that retribution. Man, I really want that forgetfulness. What would that do if I got it? What would it do to my soul? So many of our desires are really misordered desires. And they won't bring us the satisfaction or fulfillment we really want at the deepest levels of our soul. And a lack of deep self-reflection leads us usually to pick the top-line desire and hope that'll get us through when really it never will because there's a deeper desire under the surface that's been left unmet, a need left unmet. Maybe just a little more autonomy will bring me joy. If only I had one more toy, I would feel accomplished, or a little more savings in the bank, and I would finally feel safe. I've just got to get slightly more accomplished so people will recognize how important and valuable I am. Sadly, the only thing that all that power grabbing and self-promoting and self-preserving, all any of that ever delivers us is a shrinking soul. And James calls out our shrinking soul in pretty clear terms. Let me give us a bit of a roadmap to do some self-examination and to heed the warning of James and return to the beautiful way of Christ laid out in the Beatitudes. First is that all desire should endure scrutiny before being pursued. I think we would be wise, even if just as a thought experiment, to make a list of the next three things we want, vacation, job, possession, whatever it is. And just make a list of those things and, and then just ask myself the question, what do I, why do I want that? And then when I answer, why do I want Well, because my car is broken and I really want a new one. Well, why do I want a new one? Well, because it's, you know, it'd be really, really nice to have those heated seats. Man, I miss those heated seats. My stinking daughter got my heated seats in Cleveland, Ohio. Just... It's only, it's only fair. I mean, if you have to live in Cleveland, you should have some simple joy in life. I get California, so. Why do I want that? And it may cheat the line of uh, corporate think a little bit, but asking five whys might not be such a bad idea in some of those situations. Well, why do I want that? Well, why? Well, what's really beneath that? Why do I really want that? And if at the end of careful scrutiny, we're able to conclude that that fulfilled desire will only bring me more pleasure if 
even a short one. Well, then maybe a different journey with that desire would do our souls a whole bunch of good. John Ortberg writes in his beautifully approachable book on this stuff called Soul Keeping. Great, great book. He says, we are limited in every way but one. We have unlimited desire. Now, the, the beauty of this, and I won't go on this rabbit trail too far, but the beauty of this is that I truly believe, and I think the scriptures teach, and I think humanity demonstrates, that at the core of our desire, if we get right down to it, is this deep and imago day desire to know God. And so the good news is, like, we're not the horrible, you know, evil creatures we sometimes like to make ourselves out to be, or at least make our enemies out to be. I mean, I'm decent. It's my neighbor who's an idiot, right? Isn't that sort of, you know, the, the line of thinking we use? But, but unchecked desires are pretty dangerous because they just never stop. They just keep coming. Remember what James writes at the end of this little section we looked at. He says, your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So when we find ourselves feeling passionate about something, especially something that will primarily benefit ourselves, one good litmus test for its actual kind of existential benefit, if you will, is like, will this aid me in becoming more humble as Jesus described? If I got what I wanted here, would that naturally encourage me to be more humble or would it naturally encourage me to be more prideful? And that, and that doesn't mean that that desire has to go left unmet if we lead to the prideful answer. And I don't really think most of life is binary anyway, but I think it just serves as a decent little litmus test and it will get under the hood of our lives just a little bit. Carry on with me, verse four. You adulterers, he says. I didn't say it, he did. Relax. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. He's doing a lot of binary here, right? He's really, really... So for those of you who really love black and white, it's your day! Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. It's a little S spirit. So uh, Amy, I don't know if that will help you as you play around in the territory we were talking about before. That's kind of fun. Uh, and he gives grace generously as the scriptures say. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I think humility plays such a key role here. And, and if we were to sort of manuscript out this text, we would see the reference to humility come up at least three times. So James wants us to catch the centrality of humility in this process. Um, there's no question, in my mind at least, that he wants us to catch that. Uh, humility sits sort of at the heart of so many things that Jesus taught and instructed which made 
no sense to people when he taught them and instructed them. Now, that, that should come as encouragement to us. That like We look back at the scriptures and Jesus is telling us, I mean, how many times do you look at the disciples and go, do you guys not understand it yet? And they're, you know, in some sense looking around and going, uh, understand what? And he's like, exactly, right? So like we should be encouraged a little bit that it's just not all gonna make sense again because we're living in an economy that does not think like the kingdom of God. It does not reward the things that the kingdom of God rewards. It does not value the things that the kingdom of God values. Walk into a corporate board meeting and be the smallest, most humble person in the room and you will not get the deal closed. And that doesn't mean closing deals is necessarily sinful, but it does mean it is not the way of the kingdom. But that's all I'm good at, Stu. I, I, I get it. <laughs> you and me both. That's why we have to retrain our brain and we, we're going to have to act our way into a new way of thinking. We're going to have to live our way into a new way of believing. We're going to have to lean into the kingdom way of life. So all these things that didn't make sense to people when Jesus taught them, like, could, could it be the reason Jesus calls out the woman at the well for having five husbands is to encourage her humility? Like, he's just given her this incredible gift and she runs back to her village and turns the village upside down. Could it be that in that moment, Jesus recognizes that she's about to become a star, she's about to become a celebrity, that all the love that she always wanted and affection that she filled with human relationships that were left unmet, that now she's gonna go get it from the village who will make her famous. And he says to her just before that, hey, don't forget, don't forget how seeking out that love and esteem messed with you last time. You've just been with Jesus. The one who said, I am the Messiah your people are searching for. Don't forget it. Walk in humility. Now go. And the disciples show up and she runs off and she turns her entire city upside down. Now, I mean, is it, is it possible? Could it be that the reason Jesus told so many that he healed to remain silent after he did it, we go, why in the world? And the reality is most of them didn't do it. Like he would tell these people, he would heal them and then say, listen, this stays here. Tell no one of this. And then they go right out and they tell everybody. Is it, is it possible? Could it be that part of what Jesus was up to in those moments was like, hey, don't leverage this experience. This was just for you and me. This was a special, I just healed you. And it doesn't have to be anything more than that. You just were with the king. Could it be? Could it be that, that this pursuit of humility stands at the crux of kingdom living? Could it be that some of the struggles of our own lives have actually been gifts because they opened up space for a greater and more humble intimacy with God? Could it be that that business that failed, that marriage that ended, that friendship that was on the rocks, could it be that in the end those were actually gifts to you? You would never want to redo them again the same, but could it be that there was a gift in those because it opened up space for intimacy with God through humility and what? A shame if we endure that pain and don't get the intimacy on the back end of it. Whoa. 
what a shame. What a shame. You see, humility will never lead me away from Jesus. And pride will rarely draw me near. I just, I have yet to ever see humility getting getting away of us and Jesus. And and humility has an interesting way that when when pursued honestly, like not the kind of humility that I'm good at practicing, like I'm the most humble guy in the room. There's nobody more humble than me, right? That one. Um, You ever had, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to toot my own horn, which is the precursor for, I'm about to tell you how awesome I am, right? Or the, the phrase, it was really popular a number of years ago, humble brag, right? Oh, humble brag, hashtag humble brag. My kids are better than your kids, uh, right? That whole thing. It's funny that humility, when pursued with, with a level of earnestness and honesty, is a pretty sweet elixir. But when it's left to find us, it's a pretty sour medicine. It doesn't go down so good when it has to find us. Maybe it'll be helpful to look at it this way. Think of your soul, uh, the, the very essence of you where the goodness of God is the core desire. Think of your soul as the the place inside you that was designed to always seek the will and the way of Jesus. Think of your soul as the central life force that at its core desires to be with God. And if that helps in describing your soul, I wouldn't pretend that's comprehensive or all-inclusive, but if that helps in describing the soul, heart, mind, soul, if that, the, the soul, think of the soul's mission then as guiding your whole self, body, mind, spirit, to a deeper intimacy with God. And that that, that can only be pursued in humility. I'm going to pursue greater intimacy with God because I am so brilliant. (laughs) I'm going to pursue intimacy with God because I'm just such a great Christian poet. I'm going to pursue intimacy with God because, well, it's just you and me, God, anyway. So if I don't do it, nobody will. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, "I, I pray from his glorious unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit, capital S, spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust him. Christ's home in our hearts as we trust him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high and how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. Then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. And so we turn around third base uh, and we get to verse seven of James 4. So humble yourselves before God. Here we get back to it. 
Humble yourself before God. Do this as a willing act, he says. Resist the devil and he will flee. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And again, we come back to humility. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. I'm confident that yours and my soul's real work is to keep a close watch on ourselves and what we allow ourselves to desire. Because desire and the pursuit of those desires have a way of stacking things atop our soul that make it real hard for the voice of God to speak in. And the real work here in watching those desires and in pursuing humility and looking for the work of Jesus in every situation. We, we enter a room, we enter a conversation, we, we, we enter every scenario. And as humility begins to be our chief pursuit in the Spirit's power, we begin to enter those rooms going, Holy Spirit, what are you up to? Because I just want to be part of what you're doing in this conversation. I got this thing I want to talk about. I got this thing I want to tell somebody about. I got this thing that I want to get done. But, but Spirit, what are you doing in this room? because I think that'd be the best thing for me to partner in. What are you up to in this room? In a thousand years of study and reflection and debate over the lessons in the story of Beowulf, one lesson is often missed. Again, you know, Beowulf is celebrated both in life and death, but, but in the end, his life was reduced to fighting two external monsters and there's no reflection in the story of the internal monster he had to face that caused him to kill. You see, one of probably a dozen lessons in the poem of Beowulf is to attend to our internal world more than we worry about the external world. What would have happened if that king of the Danes was more attentive to his internal world than the party he wanted on the external? And what would have happened if Grendel the monster was keenly aware of his own jealousy instead of his hunger to kill? And what would have happened if Beowulf had been a force of peace because his internal world was so ordered in the desires of God that violence meeting violence wasn't even thought of? I really do believe that at the center of the Christian way is the invitation to self-reflect, which always opens space for the spirit to transform. He won't force his way in on us. He will not force us to be transformed. Paul writes elsewhere in the book of Ephesians, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the power of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of the evil in the heavenly realms. Pray with me. Father, Son, and Spirit. May these moments remind us of the battle that rages and the battle that rages that's left unseen most of the time. Uh, 
But God, may these moments, uh, maybe above all, may they remind us uh, that true transformation into the likeness of Jesus is only accomplished through love. So may we not hear from James in chapter four, just try harder, just, just be better. But may we rather hear from James four, ascribe yourself to the way of Christ and submit yourself to his goodness. May you find us to be increasingly humble people who've humbled ourselves before our God in heaven, who've given ourselves to your will and your way, Jesus. We pray these things in the name of our risen King. Amen.